As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Good morning, welcome to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. It's Wednesday the 15th of November. I'm Michael Bailey and today we're asking... Why is Emma Hayes off to the USA? This is theoretically one of the best jobs in international football with one of the highest expectations. How much does it cost to win the treble? It is staggering. I mean, £423 million. And is Xabi Alonso proving the real deal with Leverkusen? 31 points from a possible 33 is, is unbelievable. This is the Daily Football Briefing with Michael Bailey. It was expected and now it's confirmed. Emma Hayes will be the manager of the US women's national team. The announcement comes 10 days after Chelsea revealed her departure from the club at the end of this season. Hayes actually began her coaching career in the US more than 20 years ago. Now she'll return to take on one of the biggest jobs in the game. Meg Linehan is a senior writer at The Athletic and she joins us now. Meg, take us through the timeline and what's been announced. We finally got the official confirmation that Emma Hayes has become the 10th full-time coach for the U.S. Women's National Team. The fun part is that she won't actually be starting this job until May. But like, let's let's rewind first because this has been a couple months in the works. The, the job opened up. In August, following Vlako Andonovsky's departure from the U.S. Women's National Team, following the World Cup and their exit in the round of 16, it has been a many-month search process for U.S. soccer run by their technical director, Matt Crocker. Worldwide search, I mean, you you look at the list of things that they said that they did, these sort of psychoanalytical tests on, I mean, like a full day, just a battery of tests and figuring out if she's a good culture fit, a good tactical fit, everything that you could potentially need from your next head coach. But yes, we now have official confirmation after Chelsea drops their little statement on November 4th saying that she is leaving the club at the end of the season to take a job elsewhere, as Emma Hayes herself joked, that I could go be a pilot. You don't know what I'm doing, but we finally know <laughs> that she is, in fact, the next head coach of the U.S. Women's National Team. Which has to be said was a job that came out quite quickly as a likely destination for her when her Chelsea exit was confirmed. What's attracted Emma Hayes to this job, Meg? I think it's a completely different job. Obviously, you know, she has spoken a lot about wanting more family time, wanting kind of a better work-life balance. So I think there is that, though, 
from every conversation I've had, like there is a full understanding that this is a full-time job. She's moving to Chicago. will eventually move to Atlanta when U S soccer moves their headquarters. So the, the difference though, is that with the U S women's national team, you are not on a training ground every single day, right? Like she's not going to have to commute every single day. There will be travel obviously with international windows and all of that kind of stuff. But I think there is a lifestyle change at play for her here. And then there's also a return to the U S she obviously has some history here in the United States and in her coaching career. And then it's just, I think the prestige of the U S women's national team job. I mean, this is theoretically one of the the best jobs in international football with one of the highest expectations and, and pressure around it. So if you have won a lot of things at the club level and you want a step up, obviously there is the challenge of the US Women's National Team and, and everything that comes along with that. So what happens from here and what is the big focus for Hayes' job with the US? I mean, so what's fun is like really for the next few months, everybody kind of goes their separate ways. So we will have an interim coach here with the US Women's National Team. But, you know, when this thing really finally starts to get underway, in theory, she would be joining in late May, assuming everything goes well for Chelsea through the end of Champions League. But then the the immediate project is she has two camps, basically, with this US Women's National Team ahead of the Olympics. You have a camp late May into early June, and then July 8th through the 16th, and then it's literally the Olympics. So you have to try to bring Emma Hayes in kind of immediately. There will be this transition plan of some kind with Twyla Kilgore, who will then remain as a full-time assistant coach under Emma Hayes. So there is this attempt at a transition, but really for the next few months, it's just hey, you go do your thing at Chelsea. We'll be over here trying to prepare for the Olympics. And in theory, these two sides are not really supposed to be talking, but you have to imagine Emma Hayes is at least paying some attention to the team that she's going to be taking over. But it is a very strange situation. We haven't really seen anything quite like this level of it. Mark Parsons did it a little bit, um, when he was with the Thorns and then got the Netherlands head coaching job. But this, I think, is on a, a very different level. So it will be, honestly, fascinating to watch happen. Thanks, Meg. And you can hear more on Hay's new job by heading over to our full-time Europe podcast once you've finished listening to us. You're listening to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. How much does it cost to win the treble these days? Well, today we have the answer. Manchester City have published their financial accounts for last season when they won the Premier League, Champions League and FA Cup. Mark Critchley is our Manchester-based news reporter and here he is. Mark, without bombarding us with too many big numbers, what was most eye-catching about the financial picture at Man City? Uh, I think the headline figure most definitely is going to be the fact that they took £730 million in revenue, total revenue, and that... Uh, by my working is a Premier League record. Now, of course, winning the treble helps get into and winning the Champions League final really helps boost your broadcasting numbers. Going all the way in the Cups means you play more games at home, so there's more money through the gate. And, you know, you get new sponsorships, new partnerships because brands want to be associated with a team that's winning winning games. And I think altogether that means they've made an 80 million profit club record, almost doubling the club record profit they made last year. So it's City right, success breeds success both on and off the pitch. And to that extent, these results really are no surprise. There are lots of obviously other details in these accounts. How does it all compare with their Premier League rivals? 
the total figure is way beyond what any of the rivals have really posted in recent years. I think United posted 640 million just a few weeks ago, and that's now been blown out of the water. That was the previous record. And, you know, there was a time when you could rely really on United to be that cash machine that would just print money. But matter of fact, City have actually been outstripping United for each of the past I think three seasons in terms of revenue. They don't have big match day revenues. You know, there's lower takings at the AI compared to Old Trafford, Anfield, uh, the Emirates, but it's on the commercial side where they really excel. I think 340 odd million alone of, of this of this record revenue has come through commercial deals and sponsorships. But, you know, I think as we're all aware of events that, and news stories over the past few years, some of those come with a question mark as well. Indeed, we'll come to those bits in a, in a moment. In terms of Manchester City's wage bill, uh, how has that come out of this? Because they're, they're seen as a club that maybe don't always spend the biggest fees, but does that money sort of go towards players in, in different ways? I'm glad you asked because actually there's another Premier League record broken here as well by my working and that is the wage bill which went up to about £423 million. So I I think United's, the previous records was United a couple of seasons ago at 384. Now, if you ask City about this, they'll say the reason why it was so high last season is because you have all these bonuses, you have all these performance-related clauses and if you're so successful on the pitch then it makes sense that this money goes back into the players' pockets. And I think even if you take it as a percentage of the revenues that they've come in, the revenues are so big that it's actually a pretty healthy financial state anyway. But it is staggering. I mean, £423 million. There's been loads of studies about correlations between spending on wages and success. And, you know, if that's what it takes to compete, well, that really does set the bar quite high. There is an asterisk here, of course, which is the Man City are still charged with 115 financial fair play breaches by the Premier League. That was between 2009 and 2018. Where are we with that? About precisely where we were on the 6th of February earlier this year when the Premier League statement dropped. From a public perspective, at least, I think City have obviously appointed lawyers, the Premier League have appointed lawyers, and the wheels, if you like, of of what will be a very long, drawn-out process, they've started to turn. This isn't something that's going to be played out in public. It's not happening in a court of law. It's an independent Premier League commission. It's going to be heard behind closed doors, essentially. And the very serious allegations that both sides are probably going to treat very extremely confidentially. There was only actually one line in these these accounts that related to it essentially said everything that we already know. It was that the Premier League charged City with breaches of financial fair play, but from City's point of view, they welcome the chance to take these charges on and expect the evidence that they have to clear themselves. So yeah, we're we're kind of back where we started and I guess at some point we'll see we'll see if they're right about that. The money may make it predictable that Man City are once again leading the Premier League this season, but the same can't be said of the top flight standings in Germany. Bayern Munich have won the last 11 Bundesliga titles, but it's Bayer Leverkusen who are the surprise package, two points clear at the top, led by head coach Jabby Alonso. He wasn't bad as a player, just winning the 2010 World Cup and back-to-back Euros with Spain, as well as the Champions League with Liverpool and Real Madrid. Now it's already looking like he's going to be a pretty good manager too. Football data writer Tom Harris has been casting his eye over Leverkusen's progress and he joins us now. Tom, why have Leverkusen been so good this season? Yeah, lots of things. I mean, first of all, probably the recruitment. It's been absolutely spot on. Chabi Alonso obviously took over this team towards the start of last season and there were a few areas where, you know, he needed to improve. Left back was a big one, I think. You know, he tried to play a kind of expansive back five with those wing backs who could get forward. Mitchell Backer was the main option. He wasn't quite cutting it in terms of getting forward. So they brought in Alex Grimaldo, who's just been a revelation in terms of the amounts of goals and assists he's providing from left back. 
Granit Xhaka as well. You know, there's been some great stats about how good he's been progressing the ball. Arsenal fans, you know, we're starting to enjoy him, I think, at the end of his time at the club. And he's, you know, gone to buy Leverkusen and he's really enjoyed, you know, dictating the play in the midfield. Victor Boniface, the striker, what an unbelievably like relentless player he is. I think he's close to six shots per game so far in the Bundesliga. He just keeps on going and, yeah, he's going to break all kinds of records if he carries on at this rate. And, you know, add to that the likes of Florian Wirtz coming back from, from injury, Jerome Fringpong as well on, on the wing. There's lots and lots of different kind of things that have come together and the squad building element of it has been particularly impressive. There's one or two names that people will recognise there for sure. Uh, how much of this progress, given they're now top of the Bundesliga, is down to what Javi Alonso has done? Yeah, lots of it. The style that he's brought into the club is, is a lot more possession-based than, than what Bayer Leverkusen have been used to in recent years. I mean, his first job before arriving in Germany was at Real Sociedad's B team. And he got them promoted to the second division of Spanish football for the first time in 60 years. Got them playing possession football. I mean, they were having 70% of the ball in that, in that division, even with a squad so young. So clearly he has, you know, a philosophy that he sticks to. And we've seen the transformation with Bayer Leverkusen. I mean, they're, they're, if you're looking at kind of possession and passes per sequence, which is a good measure to see how, how often they're, they're passing the ball, they're uh, competing with Bayern. So, you know, that for any team in the Bundesliga is a massive achievement. So Xabi Alonso has clearly got them playing very well. And, you know, there's a lot of tactical elements in, in their games, you know, the way they build up. They they like to bring their fullbacks in. They like to keep them wide, you know, depending on the game, Xabi uh, Alonso can adapt. And he's shown, yeah, real credentials so far at the start of his young managerial career that he can maybe go on to do lots. You mentioned the words competing with Bayern there. This is the big one. Can they actually win the Bundesliga this season? I mean, the way they're playing, I mean, that 31 points from a possible 33 is, is unbelievable. In all competitions, they're unbeaten. And the only time they've not won is a 2-2 draw away at Bayern Munich. So that's pretty amazing. The only problem is, is that it feels as if Bayern Munich are kind of clicking into gear as well. And obviously they have a lot of financial power. You're looking at Harry Kane, who they brought in, who's just been unbelievable. It's one of those where you'd love to see them do it, but you know, even if they don't win the Bundesliga, I think it's a credit to the competitiveness of a division behind Bayern Munich that these teams can come in and start to play really good football. And you know, maybe they'll have a chance in the uh, DFB Pokal, the cup, because quite a lot of the big teams have gone out. Perhaps they've got a chance in the Europa League as well. You know, it's, it's a success story, whatever happens. Thanks, Tom. And you can go deeper on Leverkusen by taking in the Athletic Football Podcast wherever you're listening to us now. One other piece of European news for you. As we expected, Napoli have sacked head coach Rudy Garcia. What we didn't expect was them to reappoint former Inter and Watford boss Walter Mazzari as its replacement. You can read more on all that on The Athletic. A bit of TV before we go and we've come full circle because Emma Hayes Chelsea are in Champions League action. They play Real Madrid in Spain, which you can watch on TNT in the UK at 8pm. That and the rest of tonight's European fixtures are available to watch from both the UK and US on DAZN's YouTube channel. And for those Wrexham fans among you, season two may be done and dusted, but it's being confirmed there will be a third season of Welcome to Wrexham with the handsome faces of Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. That will premiere in the spring, presumably before the League Two season finishes. What a cliffhanger that is, by the way. But that's all for today's briefing. I've been Michael Bailey. Your producers were Abby Patterson and Mike Zimmerman. And executive producer was Ian McIntosh. 
If you're new to the show, we'd love you to subscribe and come back for more. And feel free to leave us a review if you can. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening and have a great day. The Athletic.